Good afternoon. It is Wednesday, the 26th of July, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson, bringing us Eastern approaches from the Netherlands. And we're also joined by our very own Debbie Evans, nursing correspondent. Well, a little bit of a grey, mizzy day in uh, Plymouth, but uh, not to worry. Let's uh, crack straight on with the news. And I'm delighted to start with Andrew Bridgen, who I was able to do a short interview with yesterday, but he came up with some remarkable comments and I've selected two. This is the first one. He said, under the uniparty structure, people are, are afraid, either that or they're bought off. And that's from daring to challenge government policy. Now, what he means by the uniparty is that effectively there is no party in power and a party in opposition. There is no debate in Westminster. We simply have one unified political structure and it's enforcing itself in power uh, by the use of fear. Alex, this is a pretty incredible statement for the supposed democracy of UK in 2023, but it seems that reality is hitting the surface. I would agree, Brian. Uh, the uniparty is a term that came from the United States, where bipartisanship is even more uh, entrenched than here in uh, Britain, uh, where we do have other representation in Parliament. Uh, but Mr. Bridgen is perhaps the first sitting MP to say to camera that there is fear dominating the system. Retired members of Parliament have said it. It's begun in memoirs, uh, but perhaps it's a first that it's been said directly to journalists now. Indeed. <clears throat> Excuse me. Indeed. Well, of course, people fairly shortly, a couple of days, will be able to uh, hear that uh, interview with uh, Andrew Bridgen. And he says other very interesting things. But I've selected one other for the audience today. Let's have a look at this and uh, bring it up on screen. The truth is spreading in politics and amongst the general public. But I believe the last place that the truth will surface is in Westminster. And I thought this was a truly damning statement. Uh, Alex, over to you again. But if we've got a climate of fear and the last place that truth is going to surface before it appears anywhere else is going to be Westminster, this is really saying that the democratic system around Westminster is completely destroyed and we must surely have something different, which is running the country. Is this the government of occupation, uh, as David Scott might describe it? Yes, well, you described a, a trifecta of fear, pride and ignorance being the driving forces behind our members of parliament. Well, they can't be our representatives then because they cannot in those adult states of mind and spirit represent what we're thinking and feeling and wanting. So they're there for show, but that was said already by Walter Bajo in the 1870s, the definitive guide to the English constitution. Uh, so yes, there is a mechanism running the show behind the scenes, and that's not empty chatter anymore. We're starting to see the mechanisms, including that the briefing papers members of parliament get from the House of Commons library are there to give them a shallow sense of having been informed on an issue. Okay, thank you for that. Well, I'll just add that Andrew, Andrew Bridgen did say at one point he was gently pulled aside and told he could more or less have whatever he wanted. 
provided he started to toe the line and didn't speak out about the things he is speaking about, which of course include public safety in respect of vaccines and vaccine damage, but uh, now many other subjects as well. Um, Debbie, let's just bring you in here. We've got a little bit of time in this segment, um, but what's your take on where we are with our MPs and Westminster now? Well, it's very interesting you say that, actually, because um, I wonder who is the master of puppets. And Westminster, as we've said many times before, just seems to be an extension of the WEF. You know, Westminster, uh, Sir Keir Starmer uh, with the Trilateral Commission, who is pulling the strings? And uh, it, it leads to a very interesting debate. And I was very fortunate to speak to Ben Rubin yesterday because we both watched the conference, The Future of Britain, with Sir Tony Blair. And um, perhaps if people watched some clips of that, they might see that uh, the MPs aren't in control at all, far from it. Is there a secret government behind the scenes? I think there is. And I would agree with that. Thank you very much, Debbie. Well, back to you, Alex. And, um, well, is there an opposition? It seems that uh, there isn't in a technical sense. Now, the uh, problem with this uniparty arrangement that you've described is that there are historic roots of the political parties. For example, Labour, which is in full Labour and cooperative, started in the churches and the uh, savings institutions known as building societies and cooperative institutions. So it has to uh, suggest more democratic participation than the Conservative Party. Well, well, that means that when you get a conservative or conservative-dominated uh, administration, uh, there will be other ways in which the constitution is uh, is avoided and a new constitution written. Uh, powers are left with the cabinet office, mandarins and uh, NGOs and think tanks. Labour is heading for a landslide, if we're uh, to believe the polls, and they're usually quite accurate in these matters. Um, so there's going to be a new arrangement if the next prime minister is Sir Keir Starmer, uh, and how is he, given the baggage of his party's heritage that he seems very insincere about, going to pull off the same trick? Well, he's going to have to use his party grandees, notably the former Prime Minister Gordon Brown, uh, to say that a new fairer settlement needs to be codified and formalised. There will be a different flavour of that. So the Daily Skeptic is covering from a couple of weeks ago uh, that Labour's New Britain constitution, in an opinion piece by Jay Sorrell, will end parliamentary democracy. Let's see the detail of that. Uh, that proposals of this constitution, separate from what Debbie has trailed, but from the same party, uh, a constitution for a new Britain, written up by that same grandee, Gordon Brown, are going to destroy Parliament forever. They're designed to do so, according to this think piece. Uh, what are the mechanisms? Well, making Parliament subordinate to the judiciary. For more details on what's supposed to happen, listen to A Dissident's Guide to the Constitution under the series rubric on our homepage. Universal English Devolution, that's back to Government Office for the South West, Brian. Uh, you, you helped to see that off first time round under Labour. And I'm not having a go at Labour but more than the Conservatives. It's just a different route to the same uniparty. Uh, Britain to be re recognised as a multinational state. Well, how did that work for Spain, which calls itself a nation of nations in the Constitution? You end up with um, batons being drawn during elections. And the enshrining of the current social order, so the, the, the woke establishment, as a constitution. Um, this is uh, uh, there's more detail. We won't read it all. Uh, but read this in particular that uh, constitutions are not meant to enshrine tax decisions, fiscal decisions. Uh, this social fluff, which is going to be codified by Labour, is very dangerous. Running off the bottom of the screen there is the key sentence. 
this is a group of people who have only recently decided discovered that politicians lie. Uh, Labour is, is mock sincere, whereas the Conservatives don't have that particular angle to them. So it needs to pretend like continental politicians that everyone in public office does their level best. If you want to know where this comes from, uh, it's at the end of last year that the Labour Party brought this out uh, with Gordon Brown headlining it, a new Britain renewing our democracy and rebuilding our economy. Look how networked the UK is. Even our offshore islands uh, seem to be part of some Trump network on this uh, cover art. That will be in the show notes. Read this PDF. Most of our viewers would never usually bother, but read it in detail to see what kind of new constitutional arrangements are likely to be imposed, given that the Labour Party is going to be the wing of the Uniparty that takes over soon. Okay, Alex, thank you very much for that. Well, let's focus in on one of our politicians, and that's Ben Wallace, who's been talking at the uh, Tony Blair Institute for Global Change. Let's have a listen to what he was talking about. Let us move on to the substantive issues of NATO and what is happening in Ukraine. I would, I suppose the one thing that has happened that, you know, I think it was Emmanuel Macron who was saying that NATO was brain dead and no one would say that now. It's found its reason to be um, in a way that was unimaginable prior to the invasion by Russia of Ukraine. Is NATO in a stronger position? And we hear about the fraying of NATO unity. What is more remarkable in your mind, the fraying or the extent of the unity? Well, first of all, NATO has worked. Uh, throughout this war, uh, an ever more aggressive President Putin with constant threatening red lines that usually then melt away, um, he hasn't dared go near NATO. Russia has been very, very cautious of respecting NATO's territory. We have not seen, you know, lashings out into the areas of like Estonia or, or Latvia. We have, they have been absolutely considered, considerate of Russia, of, of NATO. We've seen provocation in the air, you know, a Russian aircraft going into airspace, but they have been really, really cautious to make sure that they don't provoke. So you could argue the alliance in itself functions, the deterrent of Article 5 functions. Uh, well, very interesting uh, piece there, Alex, uh, because, of course, effectively, he's saying that um, NATO has performed. But what has NATO actually done? It's it's crossed um, Russia's red line. It's forced Russia to react over uh, the arming, effectively, of Ukraine right on its border. And he's almost claiming that you, that uh, Ukraine is part of NATO. And then as as has um has been shielded under the NATO umbrella. To me, this is a quick, complete inversion of the real facts of, around what's happening over the rise of this conflict in Ukraine. Meeting of the Vilnius summit, because uh, as we and others who attempt to be more uh, honest than the, the mainstream media have been saying, the legacy media, I must get into the habit of saying, there was uh, quite the showdown at the Vilnius summit, as there was 15 years ago at the Bucharest summit, with, in both cases, certain Americans, the, the realists at the Pentagon, who, whose men were going to bleed to death in the matter, um, saying no, together with some Germans. And again, Merkel then, Schultz now saying absolutely not. So you got bilateral agreements with Britain, the Nordics, and others saying to the Ukrainians, we will at least pretend that you're de facto members of NATO. Uh, but it is also a vindication of what we were saying five, six years ago, when EU military unification pushed by the city of London and Manhattan was something that we were about the only people covering for a while. Uh, because we confidently predicted then, but with no glee in it, 
that there would have to be a war in Ukraine for NATO to find its raison d'etre. And that is now the talking point uh, of the legacy media figures who interview His Majesty's Secretary of State for War. So we seem to have been borne out there. Uh, I would agree with that. Well, we should have another little clip here where he's talking about uh, uh, Ukraine again, but there's one particular statement he makes in this clip which jarred with me. Let's have a listen to this. There's a rumour there's a reshuffle tomorrow or the day after. Yeah. In which case, this will be your last hurrah. In that case, I'll just be over there in the seating with everyone else. <laughs> Why did you decide that you'd had enough? Uh, well, there's a man over there that slightly inspires me to go on your own terms. Um, I think uh, I'd done four years. I'd done three years as security minister. That's seven years of sort of 24-7. Um, it hadn't been quiet on my watch. So 2017 terrorist attacks, WannaCry, Salisbury poisoning in security. Uh, and then we did the refresh of contests and all that. And then uh, defence has never really stopped. And ultimately, I wasn't going to stand at the next election. I think it's only fair to the sitting Prime Minister that he goes into the next election with a Defence Secretary that's, that's not going to say six weeks before I'm off. Um, and I wanted to, you know, sort of go on my terms. And I think it is probably really important for the mental health of myself and my family uh, that you leave on a high. But given the urgency... <laughs> but given the urgency of Ukraine and the fast unfolding events and your centrality in involvement, were you not tempted to stay on until the general election because it is such a vital job at this moment? Uh, when I was in the army, there was always people used to say, there's always another operational tour. You can always stay on for one more operational tour and one more and one more. And you used to see people basically exhausted and also, uh, you know, they, they came to the end like everyone else and it was sort of, you know, there is no more tour in the end. And I, look, I never did anything without thinking about the wider team I have. I have a really good team of civil servants, of military leaders. I've appointed all the chiefs now. Uh, you know, continuity matters. I've appointed new DG, director generals in the department, the PUS, nearly all the leadership of defence I've appointed. Um, and, you know, in the end, someone else will take it. You know, I think President Lincoln said the cemetery is full of indispensable men. Uh, and uh, ultimately, you know, the momentum is with Ukraine. It doesn't need me. Um, I will always support it. I will do my best. Uh, there's lots of other ways to influence it. But I think it's fair to the Prime Minister that as I'm not standing, somebody else takes a run. Well, there we are. Uh, the uh, comment for me that uh, I found really appalling was his quip about the cemetery, because, of course, the cemetery is full of dead Ukrainians. And this is the comment that's never made. So Ben Wallace uh, ramps the war up. He gets the violence going, he encourages Zelensky. And then when the violence is going full tilt, Ukrainian troops being slaughtered in a useless counteroffensive. He simply walks away to supposedly protect his mental health. Uh, Alex, just 10 seconds, but I just find this appalling behaviour uh, by this man. He creates the war and then he walks away from it as if nothing's happened. Uh, correct. But 15, nearly 20 years ago, one of his predecessors, Jeff Hoon, left the War Office, uh, Defence uh, Ministry of Defence, officially uh, under such a cloud that uh, I was in a meeting once with some mandarins there, and I opened a cupboard expecting to find some tea, and I was warned, uh, "Don't take those tea bags; they're probably laced with arsenic." So uh, it's it's been a bit of a history of uh, defence secretaries leaving 
uh, with mission accomplished. And Wallace certainly has, because he's put all these yes men and yes women in the keeper posts as he was boasting there. Uh, Alex, thank you for, for reminding us of that point. Let's just have a look at what uh, at Defence HQ has been pushing out in the propaganda. And this, of course, is all part of Ben Wallace's team. Absolute silence on the Russian advances and the fact that the Ukrainian counteroffensive is not only stalled, but the slaughter in men and machines goes on whilst the West, whether it's NATO or the US or UK, can't provide the ammunition. And the losses for the Ukrainian side at the moment estimated at about another 24,000 killed. And uh, the Ukrainians are not at the first lines of the Russian defence yesterday uh, yet. And um, I'll just carry on with uh, this one, uh, which is that uh, they carry on uh, boasting that the war in Ukraine is now a test bed proxy war. So we can learn out of it. We can enhance our defense industry, all being done on the slaughter of uh, Ukrainians. And uh, I'm just going to move on very quickly through this. If you have a look at the people that Ben Wallace is talking about, this caught my eye. We've got a chief operating officer for the MOD. Uh, these are some of their tasks, which uh, are across a huge spectrum. I would suggest more than one person. Well, this is Nina Cope, the lady who's got the job. Uh, she joined the MOD in June 2022. But if we have a quick look at where she's worked, the National Crime Agency, uh, HS2, if Mike uh, Robinson was alongside me at the moment, he would be saying, what a disaster. And prior to that, she was working in the Met Police. And if we put a bit of focus on this, here are the Met Police embroiled in institutional corruption. Uh, here's the crime agency under fire for not investigating bank fraud. Uh, here's HS2, labelled very clearly as a disaster. And if we get to the Ministry of Defence itself, also a disaster with billions of pounds simply being thrown away. So I'm going to ask whether this is a coincidence or not. Uh, I believe that what we've got is the orchestrated breakdown of the Ministry of Defence. And of course, uh, Ben Wallace has been the man in post while that's been happening. Uh, Debbie, you've got an extra little bit of clip here, which I really think shows how ridiculous uh, this gentleman, Ben Wallace, is. Shall we have a look at the clip? Absolutely. I remember going to see the discarded perfume bottle, which was 98% pure. It would have killed three, 4,000 people if it had been distributed differently. It had just been chucked under a bush in a park. There was a, we went to a small park in Salisbury, and I went with the chief constable and the head of terrorism. And he was saying, oh, I'll show you where it is. And there was a man sitting on the bench eating his sandwiches. <laughs> and these policemen and spooks were pointing at the bench he was sitting on. And he looked up. And I thought, I can't tell him. I can't tell him. <laughs> um, but, I, but I think that is an example of that. That would have come from the top. And when you see that, someone's making that decision. In a NATO country, things had changed. The rules had changed. I've got no words. Pantomime, Novichok, man sitting on bench. I mean, I don't know what to say. I don't know if you want to comment on that, Brian, but it just was, I couldn't believe he was that unaware that he was oh, no, being he's... listened to, recorded. And people were oh. actually, people were laughing. Debbie, he was sitting there openly mocking the intelligence of, of the British public. 
um, absolutely mocking them. And of course, this incident over the Novichok uh, scam was to help foment the war that we can now see in Ukraine. So an utter disgrace. And that he's grinning from ear to ear is an insult. I think the Ukrainians in our audience should really pay attention to what this man is. But uh, take us on to the next uh, madness, which is seems to be around e-bikes. Well, yes, thank you, Alex, for bringing my attention to e-bikes in extra again last week when we saw the RAF were being allocated e-bikes. Well, I've been looking very carefully, as you know, and, and we're seeing all sorts of disasters with e-bikes. E-bikes keep bursting into flames. This is a particularly nasty one just a few days ago, destroyed the whole first floor of, of a house and the man's in hospital. Um, these are these lithium-ion batteries so where are we going to be using, where else are we going to be using e-bikes? Well, hold on, folks, because the British Army have plans for our soldiers. So I picked up this story in Electric, um, a very aptly named uh, publication. British soldiers may adopt electric bikes fitted with rocket launchers. Now, so Ben Wallace has been very busy because he and Sir Tony Radican have decided that this is this is the way of the future. So looking into it a bit more, I went to look at the Mail Online, who were running a very, uh, I mean, tongue-in-cheek uh, headline there, Charge of the Electric Bike Brigade. These are £6,500 off-road e-bikes in Armed Forces Technology. Apparently, they're meant to sneak up on the enemy, and they're going to be fitted with all sorts of things. Um, and I've just blown up the graphic there for you so that you can see. I mean, we've got laser-directed energy weapons coming off there. Um, the batteries are particularly big so that they can go a maximum speed of 50 miles an hour, 44-mile uh, range. I mean, I don't even know what to say, gentlemen. I really don't know what to say about this. But we do have... A little bit of video and it's silent video and at this point I'd like to throw it over to you gentlemen to describe possibly what you're seeing. The first part of the video is the UK and the second part of the video is the e-bikes being used already in Ukraine. Let's have a little look. Okay so what we've got here is a soldier I think he's got a light anti-tank weapon but uh, it's clearly an advert because he's about to get on an electric bike uh, he's on a nice bit of coastline, I think somewhere in Dorset, so uh, clearly fighting off the enemy which are about to invade the UK. Um, but this is like something out of a pantomime. And what it is, is a crude copy of the fact that in Ukraine, the Russians have very successfully been using quad bikes, of course, powered by a proper engine, uh, which can take two men and two anti-tank weapons across the battlefield very quickly. Um, so I think utter nonsense. I think we've got a second little clip here. And uh, let's play this. And this is uh, them in action uh, in uh, Ukraine, I think. So, um, yeah, yes. we're going... To this one's in this one's in Ukraine, um, and these have already been deployed. And apparently, there's now a whole agenda. But th this is these are electric bikes which are known to explode. That we're putting rocket launchers on the back of. I I simply don't know what to say. And as an ex-military person yourself, Brian, I just was interested in your initial thoughts, and well, I would like to know what's happening in the chat box as well. 
Debbie, my initial thoughts of the irony of the fact that, of course, Ukraine's um, electricity distribution system has been heavily damaged by the Russians. So what better than to provide them with electric bikes and say, well, you've got to find the charging point on the battlefield. Um, so you've got a bit more here. We've got a 50 mile an hour police edition. And uh, shall I go yep, on to we've the... We've got a special one for the police uh, yep. that you can see here. You can do a screenshot of that. And uh, not being wanting, wanting to be left out, we also have a bike ambulance. So that's what we... These are the ones that are being rolled out in Paris. And of course, none of this has been debated properly with the public. This is simply edict uh, coming in from a rules-based international order. Um, well, let's come back home, uh, Alex, and uh, you've been uh, tackling the MHRA on freedom of information. Even better, someone has on our behalf, just before we cover that, uh, some wisecracks in our chat box when we've started covering these bikes in the military last week suggested that uh, these gentlemen could be called the first Deliveroo squadron uh, and that they might also be known as the Special Electric Scooter Squadron or SESS, which means if they train with the better known SAS and SBS, they could be training in the cesspit at Hereford. Uh, one other person suggested the Taliban's gone green. Uh, this is not a finished story, but we want to focus on this at this stage just to remind people that they should never grow weary in pursuing freedom of information requests. Um, a viewer back in January uh, told the MHRA, Britain's Medicines and uh, Drugs uh, Regulator and also Regulator of Healthcare Products, of course, devices, uh, that he wasn't happy with them saying you're a vexatious uh, person. This goes back to, if, if you're watching last year, you will know, Many of our viewers and others asked, where's the quantitative risk assessment <clears throat> on your yellow card data on uh, COVID vaccine injuries? And the MHRA decided to have a blanket policy uh, of saying you're vexatious. Uh, one viewer, this one, decided to uh, bat that back and uh, said, yeah, now I want a review, which you have to do first with the agency in question, in this case, MHRA. And he said at this point, uh, you're pointing me to web pages. This is a, a tactic to, to, to fob me off because you're mentioning it at the, uh, the second stage not the first. Um, various things you can freeze the screen and read where he's saying, um, uh, you haven't really answered me, so I want an internal review. Now, if we zip forward, uh, the Information Commissioner's Office, ICO, took many months to, re to reply. That's not foot dragging, that's short staffed uh, is the problem there. Uh, they took nine months to reply to his first. And I really want to impress this upon people. Go on, you know, after you've got your uh, go away response from the, the MHRA or whoever it is from your review request to them, take it to the Information Commissioner's office and wait. After a, f a first a nine-month delay, then a two-month delay to the follow-up, this is what came back. The MHRA has notified the tribunal that it wishes to appeal the Information Commissioner's decision, which was uh, stop telling this guy he's vexatious. There's no grounds for it just because he wanted uh, quantities of risk assessment and it wasn't all a campaign after all. Uh, though it has somewhat ironically, this is British understatement, isn't it? Somewhat ironically, given his findings, uh, the MHRA has asked for an extension in which to file its grounds of appeal. The rest you can read. Uh, I don't want to get into the weeds of it. I just want to point out that the ICO is clearly on side uh, with some people who take these complaints. And you should just regard the go away and then the refusal uh, at the second stage from the agency, the, uh, the review, as the preliminaries. Then you go to the ICU, ICO and you wait it out. Uh, moving on to cash and the disappearance thereof. Fan banter has covered this, that a video has emerged of Swansea City uh, Football uh, Club deciding that it's going to go cashless in its uh, premises, particularly the fans' shop. Uh, 
Um, and we see that a video has emerged with Swansea City saying that their staff were abused. Now, here is the 15 or 16 seconds of the, men, the gentleman in question, Gavin Smith, actually shopping. And see if you can spot the verbal abuse here. Do you have a season ticket? I don't, mate. There's a red quick. the police. Answer, there wasn't. There's your eight quid, phone the police. Uh, the club statement uh, on this matter, as covered in fanzine, uh, the, the, the fan site there, was they're very disappointed. Uh, there was verbal abuse of a staff member and he left without paying via the correct procedure. Uh, we are fully cashless. We've communicated this on several occasions. I asked uh, Swansea City whether they were actually referring to those remarks. There's your eight quid phone the police when they claimed there was verbal abuse. And they replied with this. Um, first, accept our apologies in reply, delay replying, which is fair enough. However, strange use of the word forever, we would advise you that the full exchange was not featured on what has been shared on social media. Well, if you go to that uh, webpage I showed a moment ago, you can see that there's blank audio before and after. I don't know where the edits should have been. Uh, also, which means on a separate point, so they're, they're not claiming it was part of the footage, the club takes a zero tolerance approach to abuse towards its staff. In the full clip on that page, you will see that there's effing and blinding before and after the shop. But each of those mentions is clearly referring to the public being weak or to the government, not to the football club. So the only possible explanation, if Swansea's telling the truth, is that there was a not filmed first episode when, uh, uh, when Mr. Uh, Smith went into the, the club on another occasion. Uh, but it's the disappearance of cash that bothers us here. Yes, and also we are going to get you if you dare to challenge our policy. OK, well, if you like what the UK column is doing, please support us. And uh, the best way to do that is to take a subscription and join us. This gives you entitlement to join our community, uh, but also benefit from UK Extra, where we discuss other topics in a more lighthearted way or very often in a more lighthearted way. You can also help us by shopping. Um, so if you haven't got into the UK column shop, have a look online for that. And of course, please share the material. This is the one of the key things of putting out the news that we do. We hope that you will share it with others. Now, Debbie, your blog is, uh, this is your latest blog, The Future of Britain 2023 and AstraZeneca. Just give us 10 seconds. Yes, uh, a new drug from AstraZeneca I'd like everybody just to be aware of. We'll cover it in the news in a minute. Uh, the MHRA annual report and accounts are out, so there's a link that will take you there. And the man that stole 200,000 Cadbury's chocolate cream eggs and more. OK, thank you for that. And uh, Alex, you've got some mentions for us here, I think. Yes, show notes will get the detail of these for you under the programme. But uh, here, Afru uh, is with a straight face telling us that the problem with conspiracy theorists is that they're now true. The spectre of true conspiracy theorists has arisen. Uh, if you tap that again, you will see uh, the particularly egregious bit. Uh, those with less nuanced thinking, that would be you, me and Debbie, uh, argue that revelations of truth are a good idea. But actually, experts say society is more brittle than that now. Because even if people accept one true conspiracy theory, that will inevitably erode trust in essential institutions. Ah, the truth's not essential, the institutions are, I get it. Uh, Democratic Congresswoman Stacey Plaskett 
uh, has made a speech you can find uh, described by Reclaim the Net here, uh, not a speech, an interview, uh, saying that if RFK Jr., now a presidential candidate, allowed to speak by whom she doesn't say, on what basis she doesn't say, that would make the Biden administ administration hesitant about stopping in misinformation. Uh, good news, we're often accused of not covering it. Some might remember the American veteran Joshua Rohrer, who got traumatized in Iraq, uh, who uh, had this wonderful dog, Sunshine, that accompanied him everywhere. You might remember that the city of Gastonia, North Carolina, the police department there um, stopped him uh, in a rather aggressive way. The dog did not bark or bite, although they claimed that it had. Uh, it ran off uh, after being tasered and then was tasered to death again several hours later on the, another part of the highway. Well, Mr. Rohrer is deciding, if you tap that again, uh, and this is being covered by Task and Purpose, to sue Gastonia Police Department. And if you hit that again, you will see uh, that there was also lies about him uh, by the city of Gastonia. And if you freeze the screen, the judge in the case as well uh, said, you're a low information person if you take his side. The Brownstone Institute uh, has got yet another case of an American state compensating Christians or ordering the judge there compensating uh, Christians for their rights violations because of lockup. And uh, just a nice uh, amplification, the other side would say, uh, of Ian Davis's useful public, uh, global public-private partnership uh, pyramid. People are making nice, nice handwritten versions of this now to spread the um, insights that Ian Davis has come across. We've also published letters to the editor, uh, a wonderful crop, which you'll find under comment halfway down the homepage, uh, lead item being the power of a UK column hoodie to attract the right uh, minded people around you and to have good discussions, but also a letter from a hypnotherapist, a poem uh, referring to many of the things we said that came true, um, and really, and also a, a piece appreciating uh, that we challenge them uh, on their pre assumptions with what we publish as well. A German doctor has written this as well on VADES, vaccine acquired immune deficiency syndrome. Medical mechanisms for it are now rather well described with references to the scientific literature. Okay, Alex, and, uh, sorry, that's this one here, Disease X, or am I on to uh, your section here, Debbie? Yes, that's me. Um, yes. yes, and once again, we're looking for Disease X, and, and we know that Bill Gates is very um, keen to look for any germs with his germ hunters, and the WEF are still looking for Disease X. And with that in mind, uh, the President, Joe Biden, has launched um, a new Office of Pandemic Preparedness. So we now have to live with COVID. This is, um, we're going to stand down the, all the COVID departments, and now we're going to have a permanent office. So this permanent office is now being created to coordinate um, and implement actions with if, if there are any biological threats or pathogens that affect the USA. So who's leading this? Well, um, the president has rolled out a retired general. This is, um, Alex, is that Friedrich there? Friedrich. You'll have to correct me on my pronunciation. Major General Paul Friedrich. Um, it's interesting, his mum was uh, a Hungarian freedom fighter and his grandparents were killed by the Russians. So he's going to be in charge of this new office because now we are obviously in danger of a pandemic. Um, I would like to say at this point too, that there are a couple of stories around at the moment. There's a case of MERS that's uh, broken out in Abu Dhabi and the WHO are on that. And there's also an outbreak of dengue in Egypt and the WHO are very keen to be running a webinar on dengue. 
So staying on health, I just want to come back to the NHS's description of bronchiolitis. Now, bronchiolitis is caused by this respiratory syntesial virus. And we know that many children are appearing to get fairly severe cases of respiratory syntesial virus, whether or not this is associated to mum having had the vaccine, we're not quite sure, but this is very common. We called it in my day bronchiolitis. It's very common. Most children by the age of two will have had it and most make an unremarkable recovery, which is good in medical jargon. And my kids we used to take them up to the bathroom, steam them, and in severe cases, they might have needed a nebulizer, but all got better, thank goodness. However, AstraZeneca have been very busy partnering with Sanofi. Now, this to me is extremely concerning. I want you to just notice that this is called Bayfortis. It's called Bayfortis has been approved in the US for the prevention of RSV, lower respiratory tract disease infection. Now, this is not a vaccine. This is a preventative injection. But I've been saying for a very long time, we need to check the active ingredients. So this product, which is marketed as Bayfortis, is actually a monoclonal antibody. And I can't even pronounce the name. They like to have the name so that it's very difficult to pronounce, but it's Nervuzumab. If you just go back to the previous slide for two seconds, it'll say that at there at the bottom, not the NHS one, the um, next one with the um, details of Bayfortis. That's it. Thank you. Um, so it's already been approved in the European Union. Now, this has just been approved by the FDA, which we'll come to in a minute, but you can see it's the first preventative option approved to protect a broad infant population, including those born healthy at term or preterm or with specific health conditions. Now, these children are going to be getting this injection regardless of whether they're sick, whether they're healthy, and if they're being born at an RSV season, which is autumn or winter, then they will get this injection of a monoclonal antibody that has, as we'll see, has gone through very little clinical testing. And I'm going to be speaking, hopefully, to a paediatrician soon. So here's the announcement from the US FDA to say that they've approved this new drug to prevent RSV in babies and toddlers. Now, we've spoken before about the FDA will be giving approvals, and those approvals will be used in the United Kingdom in the early 2024. So we could be getting it in the UK. If you look at the clinical trials for this product from AstraZeneca, you can see it says no results found. This is an investigative product. There's another screenshot of another uh, phase of the clinical trial as well. And this clearly says this is an investigative product this is still under clinical trial. So I just want parents to be aware of what might be sneaked into their child's vaccination program or as a newborn baby, are they receiving a monoclonal antibody for a, a condition that they, they don't need to have it? So that's my warning for parents. Okay, Debbie, thank you very much for that. Well, staying on matters to do with 
Um, I was going to say health, but that's probably an inappropriate term. This is organ trafficking. Uh, big thank you to S, who sent me a really interesting email very early this morning uh, with a whole lot of links through to reports about Ukrainian babies and a probe around stem cells. Um, I followed this through. I'm going to encourage people to go and look at these BBC links themselves. But here's the title. This is back in August 2005, Ukraine Baby Theft Claims Probe, Harrowing Reports of Babies Stolen at Birth and Human Organ Removal in Ukrainian Cities Are Being Investigated by Top uh, EU Body. Uh, more detail there on the right-hand side, but uh, basically mothers are saying that they're too scared almost to go and give birth within the hospital system. Now, remember, this is an investigation by the BBC, and uh, we're on to the 31st of August 2005 here. The uh, number six hospital uh, in Kharkiv um, hit back and said none of this is true. But if you actually read this article, you'll find that the substance of the allegations absolutely stand, uh, stand, stay standing. And it's clear that the investigators that went in were not at all comfortable uh, as to what they found, including uh, buried remains of children where the children had literally been dissected. I'm sorry this is such a heavy subject. Here's the 12th of December 2006, BBC, Ukraine babies in stem cell probe. Healthy newborn babies may have been killed in Ukraine to feed a flourishing international trade in stem cells. Um, and uh, more detail here about a wall of silence uh, when investigators went to uh, dig into this. Uh, but towards the end of this article here, it says a senior British forensic pathologist says he's very concerned to see bodies in pieces. Um, so this is very, very serious accusations against what has been going on in Ukraine. And I know you have worries to date. Uh, this is 2009, and it's um, a Catholic journal talking about lost babies and corpses without organs, uh, fueling allegations of trafficking in body parts in Ukraine. Uh, we're now up to February 2022. We've got GT Invest saying that you should uh, uh, get investing in stem cell transplant hospitals in Ukraine. Uh, well, where are those stem cells coming from, we might ask. And if we just play this uh, on screen, this is an advert for M-Cell, uh, which is a uh, Ukrainian company, which, as you can see from the words on screen, pioneers of stem cell research and therapy. And they are actually claiming uh, that they can treat a whole range of conditions uh, from an anti-aging to post-COVID-19 and many, many conditions in between. And that's their link through to their location in Kiev, Ukraine. I did not feel comfortable about any of those reports. And uh, from what we are reading from other sources in the present day, there are still a lot of concerns about organ trafficking within Ukraine. Alex, uh, that's going to take us on to Turkey, I think. So we're going to stay in region. Yes, because the next phase of the Ukraine war requires the participation of Finland and Sweden in NATO. Uh, people may be aware that the holdout countries, uh, Turkey and Hungary, which is increasingly in Turkey's orbit, had removed their uh, objections because there's effectively, due to consensus in NATO, uh, there's a veto power by member states to allow new members to accede. Um, Zero Hedge has 
syndicated uh, Seymour Hirsch, the veteran journalist who's now called a conspiracy theorist, um, in his blog on what really went on. And like Gevor Biratz, who joined us a couple of weeks ago, Hirsch is quite certain that it was about Turkey being offered a bung to stop the country falling over financially. Uh, the details are there on uh, screen. If you tap again, you will see that there's another element to it, uh, which is that Turkey has lent so much to bail out its own central bank from private retail bank level that they cannot honour their domestic dollar deposits if the Turks ever ask for their money back. Uh, Hirsch notes uh, cynically at the end that America bribes in secret, but Europe does it uh, out in the open. And um, it's been suggested there's a British end to this as well, because the London Economic has noticed that uh, the UK in its export credit guarantee arrangements, has uh, funded £680 million worth of guarantees for a high-speed electric railway. Uh, Vanessa will be delighted to learn that this will give uh, a better-than-British, probably a French or Spanish-style uh, high-speed railway to the areas bordering her. So Adana, Mersin, Gaziantep, the famous uh, jihadi training town near the Turkish-Syrian border. That's going to be uh, a first-class high-speed rail now because the UK government, as you can see here in its own press release, it will be in the show notes, uh, read the blah on why they've decided to do it. The UK has decided to fund that when we don't have, other than a bungled HS2, we don't have it in Britain either, and Eurostar. Speaking of Eurostar, which is our HS1, Ernest Moret, a French, uh, uh, very peaceful uh, political dissident by all accounts, was arrested, as we covered at the time in April, by application of the famous Section 7, the counter-terrorism powers, um, and this did not go well. Uh, he decided to appeal it, a bit like appealing the MHRA's decision. But in this case, you don't go to the Information Commissioner. You go to the Independent Reviewer of Terrorism Legislation. And the Met Police that arrested him were also referred to the um, IOPC, the police watchdog on this. Uh, look at the Independent Reviewer's remarks here as covered uh, by The Guardian, but also the, the source document, which will be in the show notes. Um, you can see important restrictions here. But basically, as Vanessa and others have said, like John Lochland, police will act on a tip-off. but Foreign governments cannot require uh, a stop, which is what seems to have happened to Moray. Uh, the, uh, the, the Met police insincerely claimed that it was because of threats that Moray might be a problem in Britain rather than to please the French. Um, look at this as well. It's an offence up to three months imprisonment or a fine, not five years or something, to, to say, I'm not going to answer your questions if you get arrested um, as a result of not going through with one of these six-hour uh, grillings on a, at a port of entry. But you can only be convicted if the exercise of the power was lawful. Um, the commissioner asked Moray directly as part of his complaint what he had been told. Uh, sorry, he finds out that the officer detaining him from the Met asked Moray, what has your lawyer told you? Very questionable indeed. Secondly, the Met police officer during the six-hour detention said, if you don't give us your passwords, you will never travel abroad again and never see your family. The commissioner wraps the police over the knuckle, saying you can't possibly know what future uh, conditions will be. Finally, on this, uh, if you tap that, tap that again, Moray was told after his six-hour grilling, we're arresting you anyway because you didn't give us your passwords. Uh, he was given a bit of sleep and then interviewed under caution and held firm. He's saying, I will answer your questions, but I won't give you access to my files. And uh, the same day he was bailed, and then the Crown Prosecution Service said, drop the matter. So this is not complete tyranny. If you stand up to it, you have to be very careful in what you decide to do. You can see this off. And look at these criticisms at the end here. Um, no one in the Met said, are we really needing to make this a public order offence? Uh, is this really a Schedule 7 matter? Um, they didn't reflect at any point, and this is British 
official ease being understated again. It is difficult not to sympathise with what Moray said during examination when he said, you are crazy and it's not normal in a, in a democracy to demand my devices simply to assess whether I'm going to call for violence on British streets. It's using a sledgehammer to crack a nut. The police have many other tools in their toolbox. Okay, thank, thank you very much for that. And um, uh, what can we say? Well, we've already brought up in today's news problems with the Met institutionally corrupt. So should we be surprised that they can't get uh, this legislation enacted properly? I don't think so. Debbie, where does that take us? Chips. It takes us to chips. And I just want to remind people, uh, Dr. James Diodano, we've talked about him a lot. Um, and for anybody that's viewed his YouTubes, uh, he's Pentagon, DARPA, um, European Brain Project. And he's always said that we're now living in an age of where science is science fact and not science fiction. And he's been talking about the brain and using neuro weapons. And I was struck by this story in the Washington Times um, that's entitled China Crafts Weapons to Alter Brain Function. Report says tech meant to influence government leaders. Now, this is a, a weapon called NeuroStrike that the Chinese People's Liberation Army apparently are developing. This is going to be targeting soldiers' brains to alter thoughts impair decisions and reduce situ situational awareness. So here we go, this high technology. And I also want to just go back to chips again and go remind people of BARDA. We spoke about BARDA last week um, in, the, in the USA, and we can see that here we've got an immune chip. These are tissue chips. These are 3D models of animal and human tissue that significantly accelerate the discovery and validation of vaccines and therapeutics. And this has only just been um, published by BARDA, so this is very hot off the press. If we look at what the BBC are saying about microchips, this is where conspiracy theorists we might have been two or three years ago, but this is now reality. The microchip implant that lets you pay with your hands. And what struck me was the survey um, that the BBC mentioned of all of these people apparently wanting this kind of technology or the majority. So I went to the um, survey report and I had a look at what it said and the results were quite alarming with regards to youngsters. Have you got the next slide? There we go. The European payments landscape in 2030. This was carried out by Marketa and Consult Hyperion. And it's surprising because it says that Although it sounds like science fiction, it's surprisingly close at hand and people want it. So let's look at some of the statistics and you might find some of the statistics quite shocking. 51% of people consider would consider a microchip. 83% say that without cash, it will exclude those most at risk from society. 75% felt pressure to ditch cash. 38% of people don't understand cash, presuming those must be youngsters. And 31% of youngsters think that AI can make decisions for them. 83% feel like they're part of a sci-fi movie. I mean, you know, people are actively embracing this and this is what is so concerning. So that's the up-to-date news on some chips that we're seeing, but there's another method of payment. Um, oh, sorry, yes, let me take you back to a, an expose article um, who have said that clearly uh, we're going to need a chip in order to access CBDC. This is Professor Richard Werner. 
who said, you'll get 2,000 euros in your account every month. But in order to run this efficiently, you're going to need a microchip. And so already the um, conspiracy theories, as I say, that we were talking about is real. But we don't need a microchip. We can just use our palm. I caught this story in the Metro, which says this is a, a from Amazon. Soon, so Whole Food customers, this is an Amazon company, will be able to use their palm as a signature. This uses raw palm images to identify your network of veins underneath your skin. Um, and then you're just going to be able to swipe your hand. Um, I think we've got a little bit of video to show you. Oh yes, sorry, um, the one screenshot just to show you how it works. You literally sign up, once you've registered your palm on this system, you sign up for it. So wherever you go, that hosts this particular payment platform, you literally just swipe your palm. But like I say, I think we've got a little bit of video just to show you what is actually available at the moment. So you see, once you register for it and you link it to your bank details and your bank card, it's palm and go. A palm signature is what it's called. Uh, Debbie, I think I think you can drop all your concerns because the young man in the video was smiling. He was happy. He was clearly very relaxed about the whole uh, the whole scheme. So I think uh, uh, our, our concerns are just misplaced hype. Uh, we'll see what the future holds. I had the pleasure of. Um, trying to visit somebody in a high security facility in UK a little while ago, um, having done all of the checks through. It was only the finger scan and I was in, but the machine did not want to scan my finger. Um, I wonder what happens when you're trying to pay for your shopping and it doesn't want to scan your palm. Perhaps you go hungry. Alex, take us into the uh, end segment here. And I think we're on the subject of uh, PSHE. Remarkably enough, Brian, when Ernest Moray uh, referred his matter to the terrorism uh, commissioner, uh, he uh, it also came out in the report that the Metropolitan, Metropolitan Police couldn't fingerprint him because the machine was broken. So it does happen a lot. Now, we started with Andrew Bridgen, Member of Parliament. He's now a Member of Parliament for the Reclaim Party, uh, Lawrence Fox's party. Reclaim the Net and uh, other um, initiatives are part of the same stable. Uh, the latest is, I think, called Reclaim Education. And they, with Mr. Bridgen acting as host, had an uh, event at the Houses of Parliament in one of the side rooms recently. And the other half of the, um, the partnership, besides Reclaim Education, is the Bad Law Project, uh, a deliberate skit on the idea of a good law project run by um, uh, uh, Jordan Moore, isn't it, the, uh, the Queen's Council? If we go back to the slide you've just as people can see that Dr. Anna Lutfi, who we're about to hear speak, is a barrister specialising in, among other things, human rights law, freedom of expression and higher education. Um, 
I don't know whether she would be a natural UK column sympathiser, but strange alliances are being forged in these times. Here's the first of four brief clips from her very impassioned and legally learned, uh, a wonderful combination, speech in front of uh, Lawrence Fox and Andrew Bridgen at the Houses of Parliament on what's going on with personal, social, uh, sorry, sexual health and economic education. It's deliberately rolled into a blob. So she started by saying uh, that schools are um, breaking the law by implementing the PSHE curriculum. Much of this is specific not even to England and Wales, but just to England. People will know that Wales has taken another route with its RSE, but it's the same idea. So many of these remarks will be confined to England only in the proper sense. Uh, but listen to Dr. Anna Lutfi's reason for her passion. Why are schools breaking the law in teaching this curriculum subject? PSHE providers are increasingly obsessed with engaging school children in discussions about sexual arousal, sexual stimulation, sexual pleasure, touching and being touched. They are showing kids graphic sexual images that are designed clearly to excite and titillate. The Bad Law Project is currently engaged in consultations with criminal legal specialists as to whether some of these materials meet the NSPCC's definition of non-contact child sex abuse and whether PSHE lessons as taught may be criminal offences under the Sexual Offences Act 2003. And so... And so, and I think this is what I really want to hammer home today, we are today putting schools, educational authorities and PSHE providers on notice, here and now, that there is strict liability for sexual offences committed against a child. And we say that PSHE activities conducted in the guise of robust sex education do meet the criminal threshold, particularly in respect of teaching children how to masturbate. Now, in legal jargon, strict liability means it's no defence to say we didn't mean any harm, we were just doing as we were told. It's automatic liability. Uh, that was towards the end of the speech. Towards the beginning, the next clip will explain to us what other breaches of the law are involved. The Equality Act 2010 is being misrepresented by the charity sector, by charlatans posing as educators, so that now trans or gender identity is treated as a protected characteristic under equality and anti-discrimination law. There is no such thing as trans or gender identity in law. There is gender reassignment, which is entirely different, and as Andrew also mentioned, a procedure available to persons of 18 and over. Schools have no business promoting the idea to minors under 18 that their healthy bodies need medical intervention and pretending that this is some sort of diktat of the Equality Act. And our bill makes that crystal clear. Secondly, we are going to sue the Department for Education. Bad Law Project is preparing a class action brought by parents who will for the time being have to remain anonymous due to the pathetic state of free speech in this so-called democracy and because of risks to their personal security and their children's well-being were their identities to be publicised. These are parents whose children have been encouraged at school to socially or medically transition at considerable cost to both the children's and the family's mental and physical well-being. The parents are seeking to bring a joint claim in negligence against the department for actively promoting gender identity in schools, which we will define as gender ideology, and for failing to act on foreseeable harms caused by said ideology. 
and for allowing schools, local authorities and charities to politically indoctrinate children and ignoring and dismissing complaints brought to their attention by suffering parents. And she went on to talk about the particular problem with autistic children and young people being nudged this way. And given Debbie's expertise in autism, a very sensitive and complicated issue, we'll be discussing that in extra time for subscribe members. In the next clip, uh, she sounds again from the beginning, the beginning of the talk, uh, Dr. Lutfi sounds even more uh, like a UK column viewer, perhaps even like David Scott. Families have a legal jurisdiction over their children and no amount of wordplay about LGBTQIA plus rights changes that legal jurisdiction. It is parents. It, it is... It, it, it is parents who care unconditionally about their children, not money-making schemers and not government. The state is a terrible parent. Go and look at any children's care home in any country at any period of history and see how children fare compared with growing up in a family that they can call their own. But the pedagogical philosophy practised in PSHE today is, what do parents know? Why is this happening? Well, this is my opinion my personal opinion, the removal of children from the influence of loving parents at younger and younger ages makes them more susceptible to influence from third parties who have vested interests in promoting ideas and lifestyles to children for political or financial gain, as well as, I must say, for sexual gratification. What else is the relentless promotion in PSHE of something called gender identity? The heinous proposition that a child can be born in the wrong body and can literally buy a new identity with assistance from the third sector. The child is asked to question constantly whether he or she feels okay and told you may not feel okay. Do you hate your body? Do you hate your adolescent body? Take another name, use a different pronoun, talk to a trusted adult about your intimate thoughts, not your parents. Don't trust or talk to your parents. Pause puberty, get skin grafts, take cross-sex hormones, bind your breasts, go online, seek out strangers who can help you, and let us know if you want to talk. If you have a sexual experience you want to talk about, if you hate your body, talk to us. Talk to us. This is PSHE. The tinkling in the background was the division bell, by the way. For lack of time, we will save the final clip I took till extra time, but we will just show this slide in passing. Uh, Reclaim the Media has put this online uh, under the title you see on screen, PSHE as currently taught is unlawful and criminal. Yes, the two are distinct in law. And uh, Dr. Lutfi thinks both thresholds may have been passed. And this is her core expertise, so she should know. Uh, it will be in the show notes, so you can follow the link from there. Uh, okay, and we've got a, I think we've got a, and finally uh, from you, Alex. Yes, uh, Air and Space Forces magazine, because that's two service branches in the US now since Trump, reports that the US Air Force is dropping the commander vice. It's now deputy, and this is from very senior ranks downwards. Uh, and the chief of staff of the Air Force, Brown, said this redesignation, quote, is one of the several changes in motion to ensure we can execute our missions to fly, fight and win. Air power anytime, anywhere. You can't do that uh, with a vice, uh, vice marshal, can you? Um, one more from me on the end finalists, I think, uh, is this uh, one of the classic uh, memes, you know, Batman slapping Robin. And uh, we've shown some variants on this before. This one is the hapless Robin saying, so Wagner are our friends? 
and he gets slapped by Batman, who is ahead of the news curve. He says, Taliban, Taliban are our friends. People who've watched UK Column News will know what that's about. Okay, thank you for that. Well, I think it's a good thing to end on a bit of humour for today's news. We've covered some pretty heavy, heavy topics, but this is the reality of life around us. I must say, Alex, I'm very encouraged by seeing that lady barrister speak because we need people within the legal profession to wake up to what's happening because, of course, their own children are equally vulnerable. We'll leave it there. Alex, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Debbie, thank you. For the audience, we will be back for extra in a few minutes. So if you're a subscriber to UK Columns, stay with us. A big thank you to all of our audience, wherever you are worldwide. Uh, your financial support is allowing the UK Column to grow. And on Friday, I will try and give a little update of the new studio, which has only been made possible thanks to the kindness and generosity of the UK Column audience. So a very, very big thank you for all you do from us. We'll be back in a few minutes. Bye-bye.